trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. I am so glad you could join us today. I'm joined by my friend and fellow wrong thinker, Eric Peters from epautos.com. Hi, Eric. How are things? Hey, uh, good, Brian. I like the bumper about the lobster. I wonder if I'll ever be able to <laughs> afford another lobster. I guess I'm going to have to start raising lobsters, too. Grocery shopping is not for the faint-hearted these days. I mean, I know there's official, you know, we play down, well, there may be slight increase in costs, but uh, well, there's no real inflation, but my pocketbook says otherwise every time I go to the store. It's harrowing. You go there and you buy a couple of items, you know, on the way home, and it's 50 bucks for literally nothing, you know, a handful of groceries. I, uh, You and I were talking a little bit about this off the air, and uh, a half gallon of ice cream now is pushing $10 for, you know, for decent premium ice cream, which is crazy. And it's making me think about getting a cow, seriously, in addition to the chickens and ducks that I've already got. I think that's a wise move. Unfortunately, it sounds like a lot of other people are having the same ideas. Um, I know the real estate market where I live in southern Idaho is insane. You were telling me it's not much different where you live in Virginia. No, it's actually the reverse of the same thing that I experienced in the early 2000s. I used to live up in northern Virginia. And, of course, during the housing bubble, the prices of homes up there uh, sailed through the stratosphere, and it became preposterous. A house that had sold for, say, $170,000 or $180,000 – um, f- five years later, it was worth $400,000. And a lot of people sold out and uh, moved to the country where their money went farther and they were able to buy a bigger uh, house or more land, and that's what I did. Well, now it's the reverse. Uh, I've been following the market up in my old neighborhood, and the price of houses there is only slightly more than it was in 2003, and probably not even any more given inflation. Meanwhile, the cost of real estate out here in the sticks has exploded to Northern Virginia early 2000s levels where they're almost double in some cases what they were uh, just a year, year and a half ago as people are fleeing these urban canker sores and trying to get out of harm's way as quickly as they possibly can. Who can blame them? But at the same time, I'm experiencing a pretty strong case of not in my backyard. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's what worries me, too. Uh, I have no issue with people coming to my neck of the woods provided that they're interested in living the kind of lifestyle that, that people down here like to live. You know, the generally mind your own business, live and let live lifestyle. But as has been demonstrated many times in many areas all around the country, a lot of times these people who are fleeing the pathology of the urban areas bring the same pathology with them to these rural areas uh, and end up destroying it, just like they destroyed the areas that they came from. And we're really running out of places to go, unfortunately. I think about this often. I think, well, what if, what if southwestern Virginia becomes like northern Virginia? Where to go? I don't know. You know, I'm not a big fan of rural Alaska because I don't like the cold, but that might be the last place to go. Right. Let's, let's talk for a moment about uh, the Delta variant of, of COVID. Boy, uh, I'm, I'm hearing the drums beating again, and it sounds like we've got a good old-fashioned fear-mongering underway. Well, I, I riffed on that a little bit in an article that I wrote a few days ago. Uh, which I, I titled the Epsilon Semi-Moron Variant, uh, and that's a reference to, to Brave New World. And people who've read the book will be familiar with the term. It refers to the, one of the engineered casts of people in this constructed society, and the Epsilons were not very bright. 
and were manipulated and, 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 and corralled and just sort of did what they were told. And that's, of course, what's happening here. You've got to keep the scare porn going. So now we've got the scary, scary Delta virus, and we've got the, the World Health Organization coming out and saying now that even people who've received their holy anointing must continue to wear their face diapers, because uh, I think they're concerned that people having removed their face diapers the alarm level is going down and people are starting to feel normal again and we can't have that we've got to have everybody terrified and a good way to keep everybody terrified is to make everybody look as though they're terrified which is easily accomplished by having most people walking around wearing that repulsive face diaper no it's it's very true and and i think you're right keeping the fear alive it 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 enhances the position of those people who want to keep the rest of us under their control absolutely uh, and you can, you know, you can dissect this in a number of ways. One way is that, you know, we know that this vaccine is not, as advertised, safe and effective. Uh, and that's not an opinion. It's a statement of fact when you have something on the order of 6,000 people in this country alone who have died coincident to getting this vaccine as it's styled. I always like to put that in finger air quotes. And my understanding is that that number exceeds the number of every single adverse event death associated with any other vaccine produced over the last 20 years. And in normal times, that would be cause for a pause. People would say, well, wait a minute. This is kind of alarming. Maybe we need to figure out what's going on with these vaccines. Maybe they were rushed to market too soon. Maybe we should wait and see what the long-term effects are. And at minimum, people who don't don't have much risk of, of dying from the Rona should not get this vaccine. This is something that perhaps might make sense for people who are very elderly or who have underlying problems that make them unusually susceptible, okay, perhaps the, the risk in that case makes sense. But for everybody else, not so much. Let's, let's take a breather here and consider the facts, not the hysteria. It's interesting, too, how the emergency powers that were claimed by certain uh, state executives, I'm looking at Gavin Newsom, among others, even yep. uh, what was it? Uh, I'm sorry, his name escapes me, Cuomo, uh, for Governor yep. Cuomo in New York. Yep. It's so curious that they just can't bring themselves to turn loose of those emergency powers. Every time they're about to expire, they like to slip in a little something. Well, no, we've got to extend this, or I've got to throw in something that makes sure that I still have some kind of an advantage when it may not really even be needed. Well, it's needed by them, isn't it? You know, for them, power is a narcotic, and they're hugely addicted to it. They are egomaniacal narcissists who want to be in charge and be in a position to simply rule by decree. And let's not sugarcoat it, that's what we're talking about. In the case of almost all of these mandates, as they were styled, we're not talking about laws that were passed by representatives of the people in a legislature. We're talking about decrees simply issued at the whim of these, as I put them, Gesundheitsführers, these, you know, these people who are now suddenly the, the, the self-anointed, self-appointed arbiters of what constitutes public health. And it's an enormously dangerous thing, particularly because it has been successfully marketed as something that's necessary to keep us all safe. And, you know, whenever you hear that word, I think the hairs on the back of your head should prick up. No, it's, you've, you have written a lot about uh, the, um, the safety cult. And, and COVID just was a natural, you know, mm-hmm. offspring of, of the safety cult. But it's actually been around for quite a while, hasn't it? It has. It's several generations, probably, uh, you know, over the course of your life and my life. It it began, arguably, in the 60s when the very first vehicle safety standards began to be promulgated. And, you know, it was presented in a way that seemed reasonable. Well, you know, you don't want to go flying through the windshield, so we'll put seatbelts in cars. 
We'll put high back seats in cars so that uh, you won't get whiplash and all of that. But it began to, began to metastasize, and now it's become this neurotic obsession with risk reduction no matter what the cost. All you have to do is postulate if it saves even one life. You've heard that phrase. They, they use it often. Oh, yeah. Then any cost, any cost, no matter how extravagant, uh, is justified. And that's, that's insane. That is a crazy premise to organize your life around or to organize a society around. You know, it's a beautiful day today out here in, in southwest Virginia, but it's possible it could rain. Should I go outside because I might get wet? Or, oh, my gosh, I could get hit by a bolt of lightning. It's certainly possible. <laughs> it might happen, right? Right. But it, it, you would consider me in need of therapy if I, if I cringed under my bed and wouldn't go outside because it might rain and I might get struck by lightning. But that's the state that we've arrived at in this country. So where does that uh, safety cult thinking lead to? What's the, what's the logical end, the furthest point it, c- it could be taken to? Well, it leads to absolute total control and micromanagement of everything by people like Newsom and people like Cuomo who have uh, psychologically terrorized the population into this state of absolutely pathological fear of everything. Look at what's happened over the course of the past year is the obvious example of that. This, this terror of a, of a virus that doesn't kill 99.8-something percent of the population resulted in almost the entire population being locked down as if they were in prison. And in the wholesale destruction of the economy and uh, in the terrorization of children, in the forcible almost injection of the population with a, a very questionable, very sketchy vaccine that may do God only knows what to them, all of it in the name of averting a very, very small risk to most people based on what might happen. You can postulate what might happen to practically anything, and it makes life impossible, and it makes life joyless. And who wants any of that? No, that's, that's an excellent point. We're coming up on the break. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. We're going to take a real quick time out here, pay a couple of bills. Our program is brought to you each day at this time by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, Pure-Light.com, HSLAmmo.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Stick around. We'll continue our conversation with Eric Peters just the other side of these messages. is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from EP Autos is my guest, and we're talking about a lot of different things. We talk about freedom, but Eric, you are, uh, you are first and foremost in my mind the go-to guy when it comes to all things automotive. If I want to know about a particular vehicle, I like to go to your website and see what has Eric written about it because you've test-driven, you've you've thoroughly sussed out, you know, what we need to know. And, and I'm really intrigued about your take on electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. I had an experience as I was uh, traveling uh, this last weekend of getting caught in traffic, like a traffic jam. There was a wreck, there was construction, and my wife and I were stuck for the better part of an hour in mm-hmm. sweltering heat, and I was counting my lucky stars that uh, I was not in an electric vehicle. 
<laughs> yeah, that you could keep the air conditioning on. <laughs> right. Right. And tell me tell me about the effect, though, of electrification on non-electric vehicles, because this isn't just the problem of those who own EVs, right? Right. Well, essentially, it's a process of artificial obsoleting. Um, I'll use Audi as an example because they're sort of the tip of the spear here, but they recently announced that as a company, by 2026, they will not be selling other than electric cars, uh, which is essentially a way of broadcasting that we're not going to support non-electric cars after that with the manufacture of parts. We're not going to put any R&D into gas engines any longer. So you can imagine the effect that that's going to have potentially on the resale value of a car that you bought today, a new Audi that will be essentially obsolete five years from now, in which 10 years from now, you may have trouble getting serviced because Audi may not be supporting it any longer. There may not be parts available for it. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is that it can go the other way in the same way that bans on certain types of guns or certain types of magazines and so on tends to drive up the price of the ones that are still out there in people's hands. And it may turn out to be the case that if you own a car, particularly an older car that isn't electric, it could be worth its weight in gold a few years from now when there's nothing else out there in the new car marketplace except a ludicrously expensive electric car. I've been keeping a close eye because of all the summer heat. Uh, right now, the Pacific Northwest is is under record-breaking heat waves. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this is this is a real challenge for the electrical grid. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. People are running their fans. They're running their air conditioners, yeah. you know, 24-7. And there's a real vulnerability. In fact, I think it was California was telling people, yeah. stop charging your electric vehicles sure. because the, the power grid can't take it. Sure, this has a synergistic effect. On the one hand, you've got a grid that's already at or near the limit of its capacity to provide the electricity people need to run their homes, to run their air conditioners, their washing machines, and all of those things. Now, add into that, potentially, a vast fleet of electric vehicles that draw huge amounts of electricity from the grid. Uh, And what have you got? You've got a recipe for energy scarcity. You've got a recipe for energy rationing, which is exactly what they're going to do via these smart meters that they have been installing in people's homes all over the country where they can determine how much you're using at any given time, and they can simply flick a switch, as it were, to prevent you from charging your electric car or running your air conditioner, all of these other things, uh, essentially reducing your mobility uh, in a way that goes beyond even the limited range of most electric cars. Yep. You you know, Eric, I, I don't like to think of myself as being, you know, really susceptible to gimmickry. But then again, yep. you know, I like toys. I like flash things. Mm-hmm. I, li- I like cool stuff. But uh, you have, have really caused me to think twice about the the feasibility of grabbing an electric vehicle. As cool as they may be, yeah, um, sure. I see some downsides. And particularly, and, well, and particularly the way that they're designed, which is as energy hogs. That's one of the ironies of this whole electric car thing. Uh, there are no electric cars on the market that are focused on being highly efficient. So they're all heavy and they're high performance. Like Tesla, for example, constantly touts how quick its vehicles are, which is true. They right. have ludicrous speed. They can go 0 to 60 in 3 seconds or whatever it is. But that has a cost, just like it costs you gas mileage when you go out and buy a Hellcat Challenger with a supercharged V8 and the thing is going to get 9 miles per gallon. Um, but the difference is you can refill your Hellcat in just a couple of minutes, whereas you cannot refill your Tesla in just a couple of minutes. And it's just, it's, to me, it's a very, very cognitively dissonant thing that the emphasis on electric cars now is chiefly on performance, on style, and on tech, rather than on making a vehicle that is a better functional, practical, economically superior alternative 
to gas-powered cars. You know, I want to go a little further down the rabbit hole here in, in terms of, um, you know, ch- chasing down uh, where, where this could, could take us. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me a little bit about what are the considerations for, for people who want to people who want to have a new car but don't want to be forced, like force-fed into uh, the idea of, of only, you know, you can have a hybrid or you can have an electric. This clearly yeah. seems the direction that most of the manufacturers are going. Are, are we going to see some kind of a black market or gray market in internal combustion engine cars as, as we move forward? We may will, uh, and the question then arises whether it will become illegal to own a vehicle that isn't electric. I don't think that will happen overtly for the same reason I don't, uh, we, that they did not pass actual laws with regard to the face diapering and, and all of that. They simply issued guidelines and mandates that were, that were enforced differently. I think what they'll do is increase registration taxes, for example, mm-hmm. on vehicles that are not electric to make them progressively more unaffordable. And, of course, they're going to make gasoline and diesel more unaffordable. And then if that doesn't work, I do foresee that eventually some states at least, probably the most leftist states like California, will do what some European countries have already done, which is to ban the use of non-electric cars in certain areas like the cities and areas surrounding the cities and eventually sort of constrict their their lawful use such that they become as useful as having a locomotive in your backyard without any tracks to run on. Oh, that's a good analogy. Well, I appreciate you keeping tabs on these kinds of things. And, and you know, I, I still, I love things automotive. I, I love cool stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I actually was reading an article the other day that uh, was talking about, uh, will electrical vehicles, you know, will, will there be something that will challenge the top fuel dragsters in terms of, you know, the mm-hmm. fastest quarter mile? And I don't know what your thoughts are, but... Um, you know, what, how, what are they, 10,000 horsepower, 11,000 horsepower, the nitromethane funny cars and whatnot? Mm-hmm. Sure. What, uh, is, is it possible for electric vehicles to, to meet or beat that kind of speed? I don't doubt that they will. Um, I read the other day an article about a, uh, a version, a race-tuned version of Ford's Mach-E electric crossover that has nothing to do with the Mustang, right. despite the name, right. uh, running an eight-second quarter mile. Uh, which is very, very quick. Electric motors have the advantage of being immediately powerful. They're, you know, the torque, the peak torque that they produce is there instantly, whereas with even a top-fuel dragster, the engine has to rev a little bit in order to begin to produce that torque that gets the thing going. So, sure, I foresee that, but who cares? I can't think of anything more anodyne and metrosexual and boring than listening to a vacuum cleaner go down the quarter mile in five seconds. <laughs> no, I've actually, I, I saw a video of, uh, I think it was Big Daddy Don Garlitz, mm-hmm. who apparently because of injuries to his retina, like detached retinas, has, yeah. has now had to step away from the, the true 300 mile an hour, you know, uh, right. runs down the quarter mile. And he's using an electric uh, dragster. And it's, it's pretty underwhelming to watch. It's just, there it goes. Right. Okay. Right. Wow. You know, part of the experience was this wildness of listening to that nitromethane huffing Hemi uh, with the big supercharger. <laughs> I mean, that, that was, right? I mean, that, that was part yep. of the experience. And they're, they're sucking that away. Just like, I, I rant about this a lot. Most of the exotic high-performance cars on the road right now, not the electric ones, but the gas engine ones, are automatic only. And the reason for that is that an automatic transmission can be set up to shift more quickly and more consistently quickly than most humans, even a race car driver, can shift consistently. So you get a slightly better ET in the 0 to 60 in the quarter mile and around a road course. But so what? 
You know, I mean, you, you lose out on the fun of shifting for yourself and controlling the car. And, and that is what is on the table, I think. That's what we're sacrificing. We're, we're going by these numbers as opposed to these intangibles, these emotional things that, that give us pleasure. It's hard to describe why. You look at a beautiful painting. You look at a beautiful scene in the sky. All of these things. It's very hard to quantify them by the numbers, but you know when you see it or experience it that it's a wonderful thing and it's part of what makes life beautiful. And I hate that all of that is being taken away. Here, here. Eric Peters from epautos.com has been my guest. Check out his website. I'll have a link in the show notes. Eric, I look forward to visiting with you next week. Sounds good, Brian. Thank you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Do want to mention that our show is brought to you in part today by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. This is a special message to my friends listening within <clears throat> within the Utah area, particularly in southern Utah. Look, if you're part of this huge exodus of people who are moving to the Intermountain West and experiencing the most incredible, or should I say the hottest, real estate market that almost anybody can remember, you understand that uh, when you find the home that you want, you have got to be prepared. You've got to be ready to pull the trigger right then, right there. If you don't have your ducks in a row... Uh, you are likely going to be out of luck. Someone's going to buy it right out from under you. That's just the way it is right now. Heavy, heavy competition. Here's the good news. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is there to make things happen when time is of the essence. It's because Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry. She understands what you need. She understands what the lenders need to move forward with the greatest possible speed. From VA loans to traditional loans, reverse mortgages, even your uh, refinancing your existing home loan. She can help you. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, NMLS ID 715386. They are an equal housing opportunity lender. You can contact them at 435-703-4522 or visit their offices in St. George, Utah at 619 South Bluff Street, Tower 1 and 2. That's the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They're sponsors of the show, and I hope you'll you'll do business with them. Let's talk a little bit about something we have learned during the COVID pandemic. And this is not the most pleasant news, so I'm not going to try and dress it up as, hey, here's something that will make your heart sing. There's an article by Michael Brendan Doherty that is published in National Review. It's called Our Cruel COVID Class System. And, you know, there's a lot. I've talked about this now for months and months about how I have, have been concerned over what I've seen with the various uh, outcomes and, and uh, unintended consequences that came following lockdowns and official power grabs. But I have to admit, this is one of the first times I've seen it put in these terms, and that is that COVID has brought about a new class system, not just in America, but in most developed countries around the world. And what that means is we have unwittingly allowed certain officials to classify the public as essential, non-essential, and expendable. And I'm just asking you to consider, does that, does that seem like a wise move? Here's how Michael Brennan Doherty puts it. 
He says, over a year ago, seeing the immediate effect that quarantine shutdowns and lockdown policies were having on Western democracies, I put out my futile prayer, let's never get used to this. He says, I was appalled by the culture of snitching taking over the United Kingdom, the open contemplation by major Western governments of antibody certificates, and the U.S. attitude of going into lockdown without ever explaining what measures would end it. And there were none. He says, some of the injustices of this period have been fought out in a way that makes them harder to repeat. Churches in California at least managed to establish that they could be tyrannized only as much as businesses were, not more so. Spotting an opportunity, Ron DeSantis has promised amnesty for violators of COVID rules. Similar suits are underway in other countries. But he says the problem we face is almost too large to confront honestly. You can try to turn to the culture wars as they were before the pandemic, which when uh, some of us, he says, aim to defend the Constitution from those who seek to replace it. I'll raise my hand. Or he says you can work yourself into a lather about the ongoing threat to democracy from Donald Trump and his followers, as those on the left have done. Maybe that's life getting back to normal. But he says, I'm worried that in the future, historians will laugh at us. Over a period of 16 months, we have just discovered that governance inspired by Chinese despotism could be practiced in the West in the name of public health. Across the free world, constitutional rights were enthusiastically violated in the name of saving rights, saving lives rather, and the vast majority of people complied happily or even became zealous enforcers themselves. Now that's something governments can't unsee. And he says when governments and other powerful entities take a hard look at the whole-scale shutdown of business and social and religious institutions, the requirement to work at home if possible, the zoomification of social life, the suppression of dissenting opinion and the promotion of government party lines by all major social networks across the globe, what will they see? And the answer is tools available for many other problems. And the problem of having seen reality in the lockdowns affects the rest of society as well. Experts, in quotation marks, and lawmakers categorized all work under two official labels and a third one that no one ever said out loud. So let's deal with the two official categories, essential and inessential. Inessential, or rather essential workers, are those who hold jobs that cannot be deep-sixed or slowed down without causing obvious societal dysfunction and deprivation. Inessential workers are those whose work can more or less be performed by way of computers and telecommunications. Now, the categories of essential and inessential make an intuitive and traditional sense, corresponding to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which describes how humans seek food, shelter, and safety before social opportunities. And in some societies, like that in the United Kingdom, truckers, grocery store workers, and nurses received special esteem because knowledge workers came to recognize their dependence on these essential workers. In the United States, though, one profession fell between the two categories— thereby revealing a sinister, more or a more sinister Orwellian meaning in the terms essential and inessential. That profession was public school teachers, who effectively argued, if they were backed by powerful enough teachers' unions, that they were inessential workers who should stay tightly locked down at home and far from their usual work in the classroom. And he says, this is an odd turn of events if you've ever been accustomed to the self-importance of some public school teachers. But... Their argument was that the schools were far too dangerous, that the schools were death traps in a way that grocery stores weren't. 
But then, of course, if that were true, it would mean that the workers deemed essential, in other words, at grocery stores and gas stations, were in fact mere cannon fodder in the war on COVID. The essential workers, truck drivers, food workers, were acting as a servant class, making life possible for the supposedly inessential ones. Teachers did not want to be thought of in this way. But many parents who struggled to simultaneously work and proctor Zoom school from home concluded that teachers are, in fact, more essential than the pizza delivery guy. But he says there was another category never officially named, but it was large, and people in this group surely recognized the judgment made by governments and most of society. They were expendable. Mostly these were workers in restaurants, bars, and the hospitality industry— The COVID recession hit hardest against the working class women who dominate in these fields. But he says not all expendable workers were low-wage earners. Expendable workers also included many small business owners and entrepreneurs who operate locally and in person rather than on the Internet. It included highly skilled workers like airline pilots, many of whom during the lockdowns lost their certification to fly and who are now being rushed back to work through recertification of their credentials. These workers and businesses have been sustained by the closest thing we've had we've tried to a universal basic income. And the industries that are trying to hire them back are having trouble scaling up because of a labor shortage and the slowness of customers to return to their old habits. Michael Brendan Doherty says, Since the end of slavery and indentures, the burdens of class membership in the United States have traditionally been softened by the possibility of class mobility and the informal nature of our classes which are not legal classes. But he says for the better part of a year and a half, these classes were partly formalized, and the economic dislocation of the pandemic is likely to create further separation between them. Now, there was a time when a title of nobility might have had some reason behind it. Your ancient ancestor was a particularly great berserker in a skirmish against bandits on the trading route, or an exceptional craftsman of weapons. But now you get the title inessential worker... And you are noble in that you can stay home and Zoom while others are supposed to risk death by virus just for being on a computer. Michael Brennan Doherty says if today's Marxists had any creativity or any tolerance for being among working class and poor people, they might use this inessential title for little workers' revolution. But for good and ill, he says all the Marxists are inessential workers too. I mean, as much as I'd like to push back against uh, Marxism, I think I think we have a real problem and a growing Marxist movement taking place in uh, many of our societies around the world, particularly here in the United States. But the idea that someone in government, whether elected or unelected, that someone, some bureaucrat can make a designation that, that deems either you or me essential or inessential, with the implication that to some of us are even expendable, I don't know. It just it doesn't sit right. I'm not quite I'm not quite ready to tell you the sky is falling, but something about that just doesn't pass the sniff test. And maybe we should take a little closer look and ask a few more questions why or better still steal our own hearts against the possibility that we're going to be told, "Hey, we got to lock it all down again." I already know what my answer is. It's a very polite no thank you. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Once again, I encourage you, please visit my show notes page. Reason being, you can do much more in-depth follow-up on the various topics that come up in the course of a day's episodes. There are links that can be followed if you want to deepen your knowledge on a given subject. And that's why I post them there. That's why I do what I do. It's just trying to trying to help point you towards what I hope is good information that gives you a better understanding of the world around you as well as a little more clarity on what your influence is no matter where you happen to be standing. So something that's been on my mind lately, and it's probably just because about a week ago I was... Uh, sitting there in the dark with uh, the power off as a result of a pretty big windstorm. And, you know, that's a pretty minor thing. I don't know how long the power was off. I went to bed, and when I woke up, it was back on. So it didn't really seem like that big of a deal. But I have uh, noticed there are places where, uh, you know, power outages and rolling power outages are kind of the norm. And that's a little bit spooky. And if you were to ask me, well, would you rather have it happen now or have it happen during the winter? Without hesitation, I would say I would take a winter power outage over a summer power outage because I finally have made the connection. You know, warm weather, hot weather for that matter. In fact, we're having record hot weather right now in the Pacific Northwest as as I broadcast this. It's hard to deal with. In many cases, it's harder to deal with than the cold weather. To put it more succinctly, you can always put on more clothes than you can take off. And I came across an article, this is from Daisy Luther, who blogs as the organic prepper, how to survive a a summer power outage. Now, I'm not going to go into all of the details here, but she gives a couple of really good examples. You know, you know she, she's very much in helping people become prepared for emergencies. And she says, hey, look, sometimes people think that the summer power outage is going to be easier to deal with than a winter one because you don't have to worry about freezing to death, which, by the way, is a very real threat during a long-lasting winter outage. I think Texas got a firsthand experience in this a few months ago. But she says a summer power outage carries its own set of problems. Foremost are heat-related illnesses and the higher potential of spoilage for your food. So even if you aren't convinced that hardcore preparedness is for you, she says it would still be difficult to argue against the possibility of a disaster that takes out the power for a couple of weeks. And I think the lesson that she's trying to get through here is basic emergency preparedness is important for everybody, not just those crazy preppers. If you haven't ever heard of them before, derechos... Straight-line, fast-moving thunderstorms swept through Indiana, Ohio, Virginia, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Maryland, New Jersey, and Washington, D.C. back in 2012. As a result, millions of people lost power. An estimated 4 million people were out of power for an entire week. And if that week-long power outage wasn't miserable enough, part of the country, or that part of the country, rather, was in the middle of a record-setting heat wave during that time period. Plus, you have to keep in mind that summer stresses the power grid to the max. Everybody's running their air conditioners to try to keep cool, or they're running fans, so the usage of electricity is very high, and that ups the chances of an outage even when there's not a cloud in the sky. And she gives other examples of of power outages that have left tens of millions of Canadians or tens of millions of Americans sitting there with no power, wondering what do you do with your perishable food? as you wait for the power to be restored. 
Now, she warns about the illnesses, uh, the heat-related illnesses and dehydration, which are a huge, huge risk during hot times. And she offers some really good uh, uh, advice here on how to deal with dehydration, the different types of heat exhaustion, and and how you can know you're dealing with other, you know, potential heat-related injuries. It's serious stuff. I did a hike in the Dark Canyon area of southeastern Utah, oh, quite a few years ago. Actually got lost as I was doing this hike. And it was it was hot enough that by 9 o'clock in the morning, the temperatures were over 100 degrees. That was the first time in my life I made the connection of how utterly debilitating serious heat can be. And this is especially true if you're out of shape, if you're overweight, if, you, if you're not really conditioned to it. It is brutal. You could drink water till you sloshed and still would just feel absolutely just just dehydrated. You'd feel like you were just thirsty. It's because water itself, you know, doesn't contain the electrolytes that you need to, to keep in balance. And you're sweating a lot of those things out. So there's some great advice in this article on um, electrolytes and staying hydrated, how to store lots of water, how to keep cooler during a blackout. Just a couple quick thoughts here. Battery-operated fans. Yes, I actually have a little fan that plugs right into the bottom of my smartphone. Yeah, it's not going to be there for weeks and weeks, you know, to keep me, you know, keep me cool. But it is, in a pinch, a better way to uh, get some airflow going than simply waving a church program, right? She talks about cooling towels. And by the way, there are links to all of these, uh, these various products that she, she has found. She talks about changing your schedule, playing in the creek, avoiding heavy meals. Apparently digestion, you know, is, uh, is something that will raise your temperature if you're, if you're really full. And she also talks about keeping your window screens in good repair because if you're going to be fighting off insects while you're trying to sleep in the heat, you're going to have a very, very miserable night. She also has a very in-depth section here on food safety. You've got to see the article for yourself. So, uh... Take a look at it. I'll have a link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. How to prepare for a summer power outage. I hope it's information that you don't ever need, but I'd want you to have it at your disposal if it ever comes to that. And if you haven't checked out the organic prepper, there is a treasure trove of workable knowledge right there at your fingertips for any number of situations. It's not about preparing for the end of the world. It's about being prepared for things that come up unexpectedly. Things which would be an ordeal if you weren't prepared, but because you are prepared, it's more of an adventure. I think that's a healthy way to look at this stuff. All right, one final note here. Um, If you need some serious intellectual ammunition to counter some of the growing calls for greater gun control, I would refer you to my friend Kent McManigal. He delivers the goods. And his latest take on anti-gun bigots' delusional quest to control people is really worth your time. This was published on everything-voluntary.com. Kent McManigal says, Gun control is anti-science. It is superstition. It is historical ignorance, technological ignorance, and sociological ignorance. It's racist, sexist, and government supremacist. It is anti-social. It doesn't make anyone but the bad guys safer. Senile Grandpa Joe embodies all of this and more, as has every president before him. Without lies and ignorance, there is no way to advocate for anti-gun legislation. 
All the justifications evaporate when exposed to reality. Now listen to what he's saying here. It doesn't matter what guns were around when the Second Amendment was written. Because the Second Amendment doesn't address kinds of guns. It forbids government legislation or policy from touching those guns. Which it actually refers to as arms. The natural human right to own, build, sell, and carry weapons of any type already existed and will remain unchanged regardless of what political criminals do. Rights aren't subject to someone else's opinions, ever. That's a line you should probably write down. You only have the rights that you are willing to claim, use, and defend. And they're not subject to somebody else's opinion, so don't apologize. Now, Kent McManigle says maybe you don't have the right to own a nuclear weapon, but then neither does any government, which is a good point. Government operates purely on power delegated to us or to it by us. Can you give something that you do not yourself have? Hmm? No, you can't. You cannot give it anything that you don't have yourself. So rights, real rights, which exist, are individual. Governments as collectives have no rights and most definitely never have the right to regulate, ration, limit, license, or otherwise violate the actual rights of any individual. Now, he says, personally, I don't think it's possible to use nuclear weapons defensively. There will always be innocents harmed. Thus, I don't think there can be a right to own nuclear weapons. Neither is it just about deer hunting, though. Yes, he says the right to hunt game is important, but so is the right to hunt tyrants and otherwise defend yourself and others, society, from arcaders of every sort. By the way, his definition of arcader is linked right there. It's, it's a word worth knowing and adding to your vocabulary. Ken McManigle says, I don't act as though anti-gun bigots have a point, though, because he says I'm not going to lie for their benefit. They are a danger to the human species and need to be treated as such. Their time is up. Well, I'm getting the distinct impression that uh, he's not going to be one going along with whatever dictates are handed down regarding the personal ownership of firearms. And I think he's right on, by the way. The question is, how many other people will claim their right to life, their right to self-determination, their right to self-defense... By simply ignoring whatever politician puts words on paper and then stamps his foot and expects you to obey. Check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.